The Common Good presents a special conversation with Hemi Perez on the new memoir written by his father, Shimon Perez, former president and prime minister of Israel, No Room for Small Dreams, Courage, Imagination, and the Making of Modern Israel. Uh, I'm Marsha Rickless. We really appreciate your coming out on a night when we're all a little worried that there's going to be a big storm. But uh, I think we have a really big treat tonight. Uh, I am not going to speak for very long because we would like to hear from the star and he has very limited time. The only thing that I will say, I don't think Shimon Paris needs any introduction. I'm not sure, Femi, if you need an introduction. But I will say that at, these, at this moment in our history, I think the idea of visionary leadership is something that we all are searching for. And we all want to remember that it is possible. And we all want to be inspired by those stories of the past. And certainly, Chemi, your father was a visionary leader somebody who many of us in this room had the chance to spend time with and he was always inspirational and i think over the years we all know that he did many many things but the thing that most affected me in his later years i had a chance to spend time with him both from the israel policy forum point of view and from the united jewish appeal point of view is that he he he, he never looked back he always looked forward that he was always with young people. You always felt like he was the youngest person in the room. He was 90 years old and he was the youngest person in the room because he was always, always thinking ahead, always ready to think about what was new. He understood technology and its importance long before any of us understood it. And he was just a, a most remarkable man. So when I was asked if I could do this tonight, I felt this was a great privilege. So thank you to Patricia and the Common Good for giving me this opportunity. And I'm going to pass this right on to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I have two uh, mics. Um, good evening. Uh, I would like to start by thanking uh, Marsha for lending a beautiful house. I'm completely distracted by the view. <laughs> but I'll try to stay focused and Patricia also for organizing the event and I would also like to recognize the presence of uh, Jeff the uh, editor of the book and Robin behind the scene and uh, what I'll do is I'll talk for probably a few minutes and then um, I'll be very happy to have questions and um, ask me anything you'd like I'll start with the book though. The book, No Room for Small Dreams, that I'm so happy to see it came out last week. It was my father's last project. Only when I read the book, and I read uh, the epilogue of the book, only then I realized what I didn't know and my father knew is that the end is close, the end is near. My father knew that his days are numbered and he felt that he will not be able anymore to speak to the young generation and to the leaders of this world. And so he decided to write a book which is very unique and very special because it, for the first time he wrote about his life. But he wrote about his life as a reflection for the young in age and in mind to look at the future, to learn from his experience, 
and identify the tools that he used in his life in order to travel an amazing journey from an old world in Poland to a new world, which is in Israel. When I read the book, I realized that this is his voice and I made a commitment that once this book is out, I will continue and carry the voice forward and speak on every stage, talk to any group of people that are interested to um, continue and share the vision that he had into the future. My father believed that we live at a transition, at a time of transition between an old world to a new world. The old world in his mind was a world of wars, bloodshed, and a world that basically um, empires were empires of land and territories, natural resources, and slaves through wars. So nations build militaries and they went to war by land, by sea, in order to become great. And in that old world, the more you killed, the more you conquered, the greater you became. But my father believed that the humankind is moving into a new age. It's a transition from territory to the mind, a transition from territory to science and technology. Because through his life, he, be, he understood and believed that with science and technology, we can actually compensate for the lack of everything. If we don't have energy, we can harvest energy from the sun or create technologies that will power our house and our homes and our cars. And he believed that if we don't have water, we can find a way to purify, desalinate, reuse water. And we don't need slaves because with automation and robots, we can do the cheap labor with technology and science. And maybe for the first time in history, we have an opportunity to win without having others lose. Or as he used to say, you can become great, not on the expense of others. Nevertheless, when he traveled the world and spoke with leaders from Russia, from the US, from China, he came back home and he used to say that we're basically paying taxes twice. We're paying taxes for not being able to depart and divorce from the past. From the past. And we're paying taxes again for not fully entering the new age. So we are in this transition. And he tried in everything he did in his life. And he describes part of the things that he done in his life, in the book, to use this kind of transition from yesterday to tomorrow. If I think about my father's legacy, it's about tomorrow. It's not about yesterday. It's not about a memoir. It's not about writing the book, My Life, or the book or the history of Israel, even though his life is the history of Israel. It is about tomorrow. And my father used to say that people tend to remember instead of think. We have to think about the future. We have to see the, the opportunities in the future. And there's no good reason to look backwards because there's nothing we can change in the past. If we want to create an impact or influence, it is only about tomorrow. 
It is not what is written in the book that I'd like to talk about. It is how you read the book. For those of you who plan to read the book. He did not sit down and spend five, six years in order to write the history of Israel. Just like, for example, Ben-Gurion planned to do when he left to the Negev to write his memories, or like Churchill did. And Churchill used to say that history is going to be very kind to him because he's going to write it. My father decided to choose six events, major events in his life. And when you define those events, you can identify three categories. Dreams, hard decisions, and greater causes he served. He starts with the dreams to come and live in Israel, to smell the oranges that were brought to Poland when he was a child, to build a nation, and he was the last one to participate in the foundation of Israel. Another dream is to settle in Israel, to build a house, to build a kibbutz. All those dreams have been fulfilled. And once those dreams have been fulfilled, he started to give his life to greater causes, to service his nation. The first call for service was to build the Israeli defense industry. Ben-Gurion chose him in a very young age and gave him the responsibility to build the Israel military uh, and defense industry. And when he had to do that, it was all about innovation. When you think about Dimona, building nuclear facility in Israel, what can be more innovative, bold, and daring uh, than doing something like that in a state that could barely build a bicycle? Or embarking on a project like the Israeli aerospace industries, thinking about the space? Or creating Raphael, which invented missiles, and later on, as we all know, Iron Dome. So he dedicated his life to service the defense industry of Israel, to make Israel strong, resilient into the future, to secure tomorrow. My father was always about tomorrow. I once asked him what kind of, how did he and Ben-Gurion divided their work with regards to the defense industry? So he said Ben-Gurion was responsible for everything that exists and he took the responsibility for everything that did not exist. And then he became prime minister for the first time in his life, in 84, and inherited an economy that was collapsing, crashed. A socialist economy, 400% inflation rate. And he had to zero it to stabilize the market within a year. And then think about what kind of economy Israel needs. And he understood that our economy should be based on entrepreneurship, innovation, technology, and science. What we call today the startup nation. So he did two things. In one hand, he invited global enterprises to set up a shop in Israel, to innovate in Israel, recruit Israeli engineers and teach them, and bridge them into the market. On the other hand, create the right regime the right regulation and tax regime in order to foster entrepreneurship. And as all of you know, today in Israel we have 350 global enterprises. DEC was one of the first ones. But today we have Apple, we have Facebook, we have Google, we have all of them in Israel innovating. And at the same time we have 6,000 startup companies 
which are getting better and better and better every year. And all of you heard about Mobileye, one of the greater examples of how far an innovation technology can go. So he dedicated his third part in his life after settling in Israel, building the defense industry, to create a strong economy. And only then, as he knew that we are strong militarily and we're stabilizing and growing economically, he started to focus on the greatest mission of his life, which is achieving peace between us and our neighbors. My father believed that there is nothing more important for Israel to reach a state of peace in the region. He always said, we need to protect the island and calm the ocean if we want to survive. He was there when there was a peace agreement between us and Egypt, something that would seem impossible at the time. When Sadat came to Israel, nobody believed that peace is attainable. He was there when we signed a peace agreement with Jordan. And he was there to sign the Oslo Accord. And he said, making peace requires more courage than going to war. And some people look at the Oslo Accord and said it's a failed agreement. I tend to disagree. I look at what we have achieved with the Palestinians, mutual recognition. We recognize their existence and they recognize our existence. And no more discussion about 1948. We're talking about 1967 with any adjustments in the future. And despite of the fact that the peace agreement for some people seemed to be a failure, nothing yet has replaced the Oslo Accord. And I believe that in the perspective of history, he will be remembered not only as the one who secured Israel tomorrow through defense and through economy, but he will be remembered as somebody who laid the foundation to final reconciliation between us and the Palestinians. And some people ask, how can it be that one single person over the span of a life of 93 years managed to achieve so much? All those tools that he used, forever optimistic, forever young, curious, knowing that with science and technology, you can create the best defense, the best economy, and even cheap, even peace can be achieved with science and technology. Look forward, not backwards. Dream. Not only dream, realize your dreams and don't be afraid to bear the consequences. And at the end of the book, when he finished the book, I asked him if he has any regrets. I didn't know that he wrote the epilogue saying goodbye to the world. And he said, if there is one regret I have is that when I look around me, the state of Israel, the people that live in Israel, I only now realize I did not dream enough and my dreams were not great enough. And he wait for another second and then he said, I will call the book No Room for Small Dreams. And that's how the book was born. It was done within less than 10 days because the book was in his mind for a year. All he had to do is sit down and record the book for almost 10 days, 
morning and evening, chapter by chapter, dream by dream, great cause by great cause, and decisions like Antebe. The greatest decision to embark on the operation Antebe was one of those hard choices he had to make. And that book basically is really for the young generation and for the leaders of our world. We can do it in a different way. We can serve our people. We can dream. We should never ever lose hope. Last week we had our first commemoration and on Mount Herzl I had to speak on behalf of the family and that's what I said. I learned through reading the book that when you try to realize a dream or create something which is significant like founding a nation or having peace agreement with your enemies before you reach that point there is a lot of dispute and disagreement and violence but when you reach that point and you look at it in a perspective there is a full consensus and the message that my father wanted to deliver I believe through the book yes we can argue we can disagree but we're one family and he never ever gave up on his dreams never ever stopped serving his country until, un, until the very last day in his life I would like to share with you in a couple of minutes what we are doing now at the Paris Center for Peace what we have done and what we are doing now which is part of his legacy my father founded the Paris Center for Peace 21 years ago after the Oslo Accord he realized that peace is not being negotiated only between leaders it needs to be implemented among people and he felt that the people were left behind and so he founded the Paris Center for Peace with the notion that we should bring Jews and Arabs together to get to know each other work together discover each other around different walks of life for 21 years the center has been extremely active in bringing people together not only between us and the region but also inside Israel Jews and Arabs in Israel secular and ultra-orthodox periphery and center everyone and do projects together get to know each other and discover that there is so much commonality between all of us and the platforms that we use are platforms that are available for every person whether it is it is healthcare or the sports and I'd like to share with you some of the projects that the center has done which are not so known one of our board members is a wonderful woman Manuela Dviri who lost her son uh, in the Lebanon war and she became one of the four mothers that was endorsing the pullback of the Israeli Defense Forces out of Lebanon and she got 5,000 euros from Europe and she wanted to do something with it and she met my father and he asked her what do you want to do with it and she said I would like to save Palestinian children I know what is what it means to suffer loss of a child so my father invited her to the center and ever since Manuela has been raising money around the world primarily from Italy to save the lives of Palestinian children through operations and life-saving treatments in Israeli hospitals. So far, 12,600 children were saved by the Paris Center for Peace. And my father said once, if I am to be remembered for anything, 
it is for saving the life of a child. Later on, we embarked on MediLink, which was about bringing physicians from the Palestinian Authority, from the West Bank and from Gaza, to work with Israeli physicians in Israeli hospitals. So they moved to Israel. They lived in Israel for a period of one to five years, operating on Israeli citizens without them knowing that it is a Palestinian physician, and then go back to their villages and become heads of hospitals or heads of departments. On the sports, we're doing a lot of work with the young generation, bringing them around soccer, around basketball. I have to share with you one story. Three months ago, a young Israeli soldier, a wonderful young girl by the name of Adas Malka, uh, was serving uh, in Jerusalem and she was stabbed to death by terrorists. Only then we discovered that that girl participated in youth basketball team at the Paris Center when she was 17. She played with Israeli Arabs and with Palestinians. And we went to the family to visit them. And we brought some pictures and we brought the team, the team members that played with her. And they told us it was her happiest year in life. And they said, please continue what you do. Because Adas, for Adas, it was a year where she discovered that Israeli Arabs and Palestinians can become friends and work together. And my father wanted to show that what seems to be impossible is possible. Lately, we decided to write the new chapter in uh, the center and turn it also into the Israeli National Center of Innovation. We're taking the beautiful building in Jaffa, and those of you who have not yet visited there are invited. Please come and visit me. I'm there. And what we want to do is actually create the center as a source of inspiration for generations to come, that we can shape a different future, that we can, we can build another world, that we should leave the world of wars, because there is no reason to have wars. There is no good reason to kill and be killed anymore. And what we want to do is actually when people will come to the center, we want to create the inspiration in three different ways and I will finish my long speech. The first one is we want to work with the young generation in Israel. The children that go to school, go to military, students, and teach them the tools that my father used in order to shape a better future for Israel. The second one is we want it to be a place where people are traveling to Israel from abroad, whether they are heads of states, business leaders, visitors, Taglit, Masa, Nefesh Benefesh, whoever comes to Israel from the diaspora, from the Jewish world and non-Jewish world, will be able to come to the center and will be able to experience what Israel has done for the world with science and technology, our contribution to Tikkun Olam, to make the world better. Whether it's the Kopaxon of Teva that treats multiple sclerosis that comes from the Weizmann Institute, or whether it's the Hebrew University Mobili, Amnon Shashua, making our cars drive by themselves with no accidents, or whether it's drip irrigation that can grow, help people grow crops in areas that are like Israel, refusing land and dry areas, and inspire people about what Israel is all about. And the third one, 
to invite other countries and other cities around the world to create their own centers for peace and innovation in the vision of my father, that we can create a better world. Thank you so much for listening. I can speak for hours. And if there are any questions, I'll be very happy to uh, answer. Yes, Bonnie. Forgive me for asking this question, because there's so many great questions to ask you. But I'm curious, between Seeds of Peace and the Perez Center, okay, what is going on vis-a-vis -vis the relationship with the Palestinians that have, that have been involved in these programs? And then, in the, big, the bigger picture, how is that affected by these few people that have, have these great experiences? Yeah, so our biggest challenge is actually to be more impactful than we are. We can be more impactful if we have more resources. Uh, there's so much to do. Um, I think that when you see the programs that we have and the results that we achieved through our work, whether it's in healthcare, sports, or other areas, uh, the people that have been participating in those programs have changed, it's changed their lives created a whole new view about us and them and understanding what can be done together. One of the areas that we really want to focus on is try to develop the economy in the Middle East. Because the Middle East is now going through deterioration. The Sykes-Picot Agreement that was signed 100 years ago no longer valid. And what we see right now is extremism and terrorism in the Middle East that is spread out on a global basis. My father believed that when we will be over with the uh, times of war, we will continue into a world of globalization and global threats that we will have to unite in order to find solutions for those. Unfortunately, the Palestinian government uh, right now is less cooperative on the efforts that we're trying to do because for them, it's business first and then the rest, meaning let's have a peace agreement, let's do all the concessions, and only then we can build a joint future. I'm trying to tell them it's exactly the other way around. There will not be any agreement, there will not be any um, political discussion before the people will change the situation. We need to move forward, not hold back until the politicians will decide what they want to do. And I always remember what my father said. It requires more courage to have peace than war. So it is upon us, the people, to push forward and create a different environment, a different reality. And at the end of the day, it's the leaders, if they want to be re-elected, they will have to serve us. And if our will is to have peace, they will have to serve us. Right now, unfortunately, on both sides, we're not moving forward, but as we, I, I come from an optimistic family, I'd like to share with you what my father said just a few weeks before he passed away, when he was asked, Mr. Perez, do you see the light at the end of the tunnel? And his answer was, I can see the light clearly, even if I cannot right now spot the tunnel. <laughs> so there is, no, there is no 
uh, question in my mind that we will reach a peace agreement with the Palestinians. It may take time, but very much of it depends on us. We at the Paris Center for Peace decided to adopt a certain ideology. Two or three, three years ago I was here in, in, in the US with my father and we went to meet uh, President Clinton in Harlem. And we're sitting down and talking and then Clinton all of a sudden said, you know, he looked at us and he said, you know, there are a lot of people in the world doing a lot in order to make sure that bad things do not happen. But very few people in the world are putting enough time to make sure that good things happen. So we decided that we will embrace the second part of that sentence. We're working hard to make sure that good things happen. That more children will see that the Palestinians are just like us. That we can create a different future. We're not spending time on BDS. We're not spending time on anti-Semitism, anti even though we are against and we support everyone who is against. But our mission is to try and make sure that good things happen. I'm sorry to say we could do more, um, much more, but at the end of the day, we're doing our best. And unfortunately, it is not enough. Thank you. Richard. father accomplished so much in his lifetime, but I'm wondering if he ever said to you what his great regret was, did he have something he failed at, that he really, you know, thought a lot about? Yeah, I told you, I told you exactly what he told me. His only regret, by the way, he writes it, he writes it in the epilogue in the book, if you, if you get a chance to read, I urge you to read also the epilogue, because it's beautiful. And it's a, it, it is words of, of a person who is saying goodbye to the world. And he said, I was given some 2.5 billion seconds. My life was given to me as a present. I used every second in order to make an impact, to influence. I leave the world with no regrets but one, that I did not dream enough and I did not dream great enough. That, that is a summary of uh, the ultimate optimist. He never told me what could have been greater, or what kind of more dreams, but my father never looked back. Whenever something was done, he was immediately facing, whether it was a failure or a success. It was part of the past, unchangeable, therefore doesn't worth looking at or dealing with. So the only regret is that he did not do enough. Yes, please. I'm a theater producer and designer, and I live in Costa Rica. Um, a few months ago, we produced Mask by Ilan Hatsur. Are you familiar with this play? It's a play written by an Israeli playwright about three Palestinian brothers during the time of the Intifada. And Ilan apparently won many awards in Israel with his production. His purpose was very much like what you're talking about, and it's something that we're involved in, um, utilizing the arts and culture to make people understand each other. Not so much sports, but we, we do it with arts and culture. Our biggest challenge was help was with 
the Jewish community, making them understand that we weren't doing something that was anti-Israeli. Because it was something that presented a viewpoint of the way these three brothers reacted. One who sided with, they were, they were three Israeli Arabs. Um, but it was their point of view, and it was something that was being presented to make young people in Israel understand. And we were presenting it in Costa Rica, not just for the Jewish community, but for the Costa Rican community at large. It was quite a challenge to be able to elevate it from saying this is anti-Israeli or this is pro-Israeli, this is pro-Palestinian. No, it's pro-people. I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about how you deal with issues like that. The idea that there was a girl who played basketball and enjoyed her life playing basketball and then the very challenge that you were trying to end her life. It those it's such difficult issues. Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the things I learned from my father is that when you, when you want to achieve a great cause or a great target or accomplish a great mission, you have to cross a desert. And the desert is frightening and it is dangerous and full of risks and full of setbacks. And sometimes you say, I wish I wasn't there, I wish I haven't started. But he kept going on and on. And I think what we are seeing in Israel between us and the Palestinians is that we must keep going on because the alternative is worse. Now as you go along, there are different people, there are different views, there are different ideas, there are different situations. Some of them are tragic like the one I told you with Adas Malka. You see a family that a 23-year-old girl being murdered, but you have to keep on moving. And unfortunately, I think right now in the Israeli society, there is less tolerance to hear other views. Sometimes it is part of a despair. Some, sometimes it is part of a notion that we are hunted because we have BDS and we have anti-Semitism and we have a hostile environment and we just came from the Holocaust. And all we wanted is to get back our land. So it's quite understandable why a significant part in our society does, is not interested in that kind of art. Um, there's now the film Foxtrot that also got some awards. And we have a minister in Israel which was against funding those kind of artworks if they do not subscribe to the cause of Israel. And I think art should be separated. Uh, and views should be allowed, definitely if you're a strong democracy. And if you are a moral democracy, you should allow more voices. The same goes for Judaism. Uh, we held last week um, a day of commemoration before the tribute that we had at Mount Herzl. And Amos Oz spoke. And Amos spoke about the fanatics of the world. And our problem is not this side or that side, or if you just listen more, you will understand. It's fanaticism on both sides that drives those problems around the world. And it's not important if it's around religion or other things. And just like in Judaism, we are allowed to be Jewish in different ways. And he said, it's not, it's not a, a, a Judaism is not one ray of light, it's rays of light different views. So I think that 
artists should be allowed to express their ideas and views and we should be tolerant and we should listen and we should understand that in this game they are not right or wrong it's a tragedy that both people are sharing one land and we require a lot of courage, courage and a lot of tolerance in order to reconcile and reach that, that, that peace that we all want to see. And then not face the loss of a, a beautiful young lady like Adas or other atrocities in our society. At the same time, people must understand the setbacks and must understand the sensitivities and try to be forward-looking also as artists, they also have to be tolerant. They cannot say, I'm an artist, I'm allowed to do everything and I don't want to listen to anything. It requires softness and understanding on both sides. But at the end of the day, we have to contain all the voices around us. That's the best answer I can give you. We have time for one or two more questions uh, before we... Yes, thank you. I don't need a microphone, I think I could speak loud enough. So you had the challenge of having to share a father with the entire Jewish people. The pleasure, the pleasure. Uh, so my question is not political, but personal. What do you miss most about your father? <laughs> Everything. Um, I miss his voice. I miss his eyes. I miss his wisdom when we sit and we talk and he analyzes what's happening in the world. I miss uh, his original point of view, which is so different than others. The deep understanding, the hope, the lack of cynicism, the curiosity, um, the fact that he would give you a book and say, read this, it's a wonderful book, and call you seven o'clock in the morning asking you how was the book. <laughs> And I miss, I miss the love, I miss the love of his friends. Actually, I don't miss the love because I'm experiencing a great love from all over. But he was so present in our life and he was not just one single person. Um, excuse me, everyone. But being with him is, not, is being like more than one person in the room. And the loss that we suffer is like we are losing a lot of people at the same time. So I miss his voice and I miss his eyes and wisdom. But at the same time, he's so present with us. And last week, people came from all over the world to pay tribute to his memory, including Kissinger at the age of 94, traveling from the US to be two full days with us. I'm sure we had many other good things to do in life, but he didn't give up on that. And he said, I loved him. It's not that I respected him, I loved him. And I miss kind of leadership that he represented for our people. Thank you so thank much. You. My pleasure. Thank you, thank you. I, I really want to thank our hostess tonight, and she's a remarkable philanthropist and an activist in her own right. Marsha, thank you so much for doing this beautiful event. Thank you. 
you are such a, um, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I mean, I the, cr the tree grew. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Thank you. I hope you will take a few moments to sign some books and say hello to a few people. I know you have a very tight schedule. I also want to thank Lisa Dallas for making this happen tonight. And thank you all for being here.